Good morning, everyone. I became much more powerful in my voice over the week. I'm not sure how that happened. <laughs> it's the paleo diet. That's what's doing it. See? See? Eat more meat. So um, as you're turning in your Bibles to Judges chapter 16, Judges chapter 16, by the way, if you're using a pew Bible uh, that you found there, it's page 215, which happens to be the same page as my Bible. So it worked out serendipitous, right? So uh, page 215, Judges chapter 16, and uh, I was reminded of a quote um, of, from Linus, actually, from Peanuts. You guys know who Linus is, right? And it's a, it's a very profound quote, as you might imagine. And it, seriously, it is. He said, there is no heavier burden than a great potential. That makes me think of Samson. And uh, what a heavy burden and what potential he had. So before we uh, turn to our passage, before we get into it today, let's go ahead and go to the Lord together in prayer and ask his blessing. Father, this morning we uh, come to you grateful that you have given us your word, that we are not left to fumble around in the darkness to figure out who you might be and who we really are and and what what real truths are and what's eternal and what's significant. Um, Lord, instead you have given us your word and it tells us true things about who you are about who we are, about our lostness, about the hope that is in Christ, about uh, uh, believers who have gone before us and the lives that that they have led and the things that you have done with them and through them and how you have worked in history and who you really are practically. And so I thank you for your word. And and, um, Lord, we are honored that we get to open it this morning and we get to talk about your word and, uh, and discuss and think about and pray about, meditate on what you might have for us. Lord, as we read about Samson today and we read about uh, potential and misspent potential and we read about the, the end of Samson, and Lord, we, uh, we think about ourselves and we think about our own potential and our own mistakes and we think about how you have uh, redeemed so many of those and Lord, we thank you for that, for your mercy for us. Lord, help us to set aside the things that would distract us in our minds in, uh, in thinking about what has gone on this past week or even this morning or uh, what comes after and the things we're stressing about or worried about or uh, that are more entertaining to us than, than a sermon on a Sunday morning. Help us to set those things aside. Help us to listen to you. Help us to hear you and be responsive when you speak to us. Lord, we ask your blessing by your spirit this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, Judges chapter 16, and we've been walking very quickly through the book of Judges for the past while, and uh, it's, been, it's been very um, interesting to say the least, and it's not always been super upbeat. And uh, d- don't worry that we're always going to be you know, sugarcoating things like we are with Samson today. It gets real serious next week and the week following. Uh, this book actually starts pretty well, it seems like, Sort of, and then it kind of gets worse and worse as it goes. And and uh, so talking about Samson today is uh, is very powerful and sobering to us because of what all of Samson's potential was and who he could have been and and who um, God had prepared him to be and all all of that situation. And and uh, then we look at his actual life and of course we we talked about. Uh, his his birth last week, we talked about his first marriage to the Philistine woman and how that went south very quickly and led to all manner of destruction and war and all kinds of stuff going on. And remember, God was picking a fight with the Philistines, and he did so through Samson and even through Samson's carnal passions. And so uh, we saw the sovereignty of God working there. Well, we covered, we covered 13, 14, and 15 last week, and we're going to focus just on 16 this week, which is, uh, which is actually the story of the last two women, really, in, in Samson's life. And uh, we only hear the story of the first wife, and then now what we're going to get into today, two other women that are in his life. And, and we get to see Samson, and we're going to talk specifically about Samson's end. And if you remembered what happened last time, he ended up, uh, um, remember, slaying a thousand of the Philistines with a, uh, the, a raw jawbone of a donkey. It was fresh. And by the way, it, if it's a raw jawbone, a fresh jawbone, would that be something unclean that he touched? Yes, it would be. And remember, there were three key aspects that we're going to talk about in uh, a little bit more today about Samson and what he was supposed to 
touch and not touch and what he was supposed to do and not do. And remember, he wasn't supposed to drink wine. He wasn't even supposed to eat grapes or even raisins or anything that came from the vine, right? And he also was not supposed to eat any, uh, anything unclean or, or touch anything unclean. And he wasn't supposed to cut his hair, right? And so we, that he, we see that he, he hasn't been the most faithful of Nazarites. He hasn't followed uh, the, the letter of that vow uh, very closely at all. So uh, at, at the end of that story, we saw that, uh, that he took that jawbone of a donkey and he, he, uh, he slew a thousand Philistines. And, um, and then it, it, uh, they named the place in Hakore, which uh, it's at Lehi to this day. And then he judged Israel, uh, for, for, um, uh, in the days of the Philistines, 20 years. And that's how 15 ends. Well, we turn to 16 today and we're going to start looking at uh, a couple of ambushes that happen in his life. And, and the first one is that he's ambushed in Gaza. And so as we look at verses one through three, we see that Samson went to Gaza And there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight. And at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. And so uh, we see, first of all, his moral decline. Here's a judge of Israel. Here's a man of God. And what do we learn about him? He went to Gaza, he sees a prostitute, and he goes into her. And so we have his moral decline that, it, it, at least in the first story, yeah, he, he married a Philistine woman, and he, he shouldn't have done that. But at least he married her, Right? He actually goes through the process and he and he marries her and he he may have been driven by his passions and by his lusts and all that stuff. But he went through the steps and he actually married her. And now we see him going back to a Philistine location. And this time he sees this prostitute and he just goes into her. And so he's he's not improving, nor is he staying neutral. And by the way, you can never stay neutral morally. You're, You're either growing or you're declining you're not staying neutral. You can't just coast. That's not the way that works. And, uh, and you see him not coasting. You see him declining, right? And so uh, he goes into her, doesn't even bother to, to, to marry this woman that he found now. It's, just, it's a prostitute. He goes into her. And so we have moral decline in his life. And secondly, we have a motivated enemy, a motivated enemy. The Gazites were told, verse 2, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and they set an ambush all night and and they wait for him at the gate of the city too. And so, so they're, they're surrounding him and they've brought enough men to do the task and they, they, they have enough people. They, they, they're motivated to get this guy because he's the one that, remember, just killed a thousand of them. And then before that, he burned down all their fields. And then before that, he, he killed 30 of them just to take their clothes, right? This guy's a problem. And he's a problem for the Philistines. And so they, they know that. And uh, so they, they get together enough people to set an ambush adequate, even for, for such a man, uh, they think. And so they, they, uh, they are highly motivated. They hate this guy. They hate this guy. And, and it seems like what's going on in the, in the history of Israel at this time, Israel was sort of quiet under the boot of the Philistines. And they, they don't seem to be causing a lot of problems, except for this one guy, Samson. And he's like a thorn in their flesh. And they would really like to get rid of him. And so they find out where he is. He's in Gaza. And so uh, they, they lay an ambush for him, right? And uh, so we have, uh, we have his moral decline, which takes him to the house of a prostitute. We have a motivated enemy, which uh, sets up this ambush around him. But then we finally we have his miraculous escape, his miraculous escape. And so what happens is this ambush is set and they're, they're thinking, okay, we'll spring it at, uh, at first light when he's leaving town. We're all, you know, we're all set up to do that. And that's when they're going to spring this trap. And he, he jumps the gun and he, he, uh, he beats him to the punch. And he ends up getting up at midnight and leaving. Somehow he sneaks past all the guys who were laying ambush around the place he was. He sneaks, uh, gets by them somehow, gets to the gate. And rather than like opening the gate, or whatever, he just tears it up out of the ground. And it goes to quite lengths here to tell how much he tore up out of the ground. It wasn't like, you know, he found one bar that he picked up and, and whatever. Like it, the poles and the, and the posts and the, and the bar, and the, he just takes it all, and he goes for a hike, right? And uh, in, the, in the meantime, he's, he's, he's escaping this ambush that's been set up for him. Now, how could he do that? Well, I have no idea. 
except for the work of God to make it happen. I can't tell you how he escaped the guys who surrounded the building he was in. I can't tell you, tell you how he was able to fight past or sneak past, either one, the guards at the gate who were trying to catch him there when he's in the process of tearing it out of the ground. I've never torn a gate out of a, out of a city like that, but I imagine it makes quite a ruckus, right? So how did he do that? I have no idea. But the hand of God was with him. And so he sneaks out, he takes this thing, throws it on his shoulder, and goes for a hike to this hill that's in front of Hebron, which people estimate could be as many as 40 miles that he does this thing, right? I can imagine being angry and having some adrenaline, you know, and doing something powerful, but it takes dedication to carry that thing 40 miles, right? And so God, God is at work here, and he, he escapes miraculously, and it's incredible uh, what, he, what he does here. Um, it's nothing short of miraculous. And, and the, result, um, the result for Samson in his own life is that once again he's gotten away with it. He's escaped once again, and the consequences of his immorality again have not caught up with him because he was able to get out of it. He miraculously escaped an ambush that should have captured him. So now he's, he's hardened in his sin. He's, he's more confident uh, even than he was before in his ability to get out of whatever kind of scrape he gets in. And so it doesn't do good things in him. It doesn't do good things in his mind. He, he escapes all consequences of his lifestyle. He went into that Philistine city where they hated him. There was a price on his head. He stays with that prostitute. They try to jump him the next day. He escapes all of them and leaves town with the, with the gate and goes back into Israel. He can get away with anything, right? So what's that doing in his heart? Well, we're going to see what it's doing in his heart, and it's, it's not good stuff. So he's ambushed in Gaza, but he escapes from that. Well, then we're going to see that he gets ambushed again, but this time it's in the Valley of Sorek, ambushed in Sorek. And that's this whole more familiar passage probably for everybody because it's about Samson and Delilah. Of course, everyone knows this story about Samson and Delilah. And so we see, look at, look at verse 4. After this, so after he you know, had this whole run-in in Gaza and the gate and carrying it 40 miles and whatever, after this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the valley of Sorek, you know, it's not, not mentioned a lot or whatever, but it's one of three passages to go from the lowlands where the Philistines lived up into the hill country where Jerusalem and Bethlehem are and things like that. So it's one of, one of three key valleys to go that direction, and it's controlled by the Philistines. Chances are very great that this is a Philistine woman. Delilah is not a, not a Hebrew name, and uh, no one really knows exactly what it means. It could have something to do with the night. The Hebrew word for night is Lila. And so it could be, you know, it sounds like it might have something to do with that. Or it could be, in, in another language, it could mean uh, flirt. So either one of those really kind of works for Delilah. But, uh, but chances are she's a, she's a Philistine woman. She's not a Hebrew woman. And, uh, and we're going to see here his unchecked lust his unchecked lust see he kind of got in trouble when he went to gaza but he was able to bust out of it he was able to dodge that bullet and it just emboldens him for the next time and what do you know there's the next time it's the way that works so here we have the start of another romance saga for this guy who's supposed to be god's deliverer uh, for the nation of israel right but here's yet another woman and again she's another philistine woman and this time, rather than marrying like he did the first time or just going into the prostitute, it seems like he sets up a long-term uh, sexual relationship with this uh, woman, Delilah. And uh, it goes on and on. It's not, not just a one-night stand. It's, it's long-term. It's immoral. And this is his relationship. And so his, his lust, rather than being abated, is actually increasing. So we see his unchecked lust. His lust is running his life. Running his life. It's unchecked, and he begins to display unbelievable foolhardiness. Unbelievable foolhardiness. Look at verse 5. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. 
So the lords of the Philistines, again, they're motivated, right? They hate this guy because he's causing problems, and they just tore the gate off the city of Gaza. And so they find him. They find out he's in the Valley of Sorek. And so they come to him, and they make this pitch to Delilah. And they say, hey, we, we need to figure out how to beat this guy, so you're going to be the one to do that. Why don't you seduce him and find out what's the key to his great strength so that we can overpower him? And uh, she doesn't seem to put up much of a fight, does she? It doesn't, doesn't say anything at all. doesn't tell us about her response. So they say that, and uh, the next word is, so Delilah said to Samson, etc., right? She begins to seduce him. And so uh, uh, they recruit the help of this woman, Delilah. And the, the story of how this goes down is pretty fascinating and pretty um, gut-wrenching, actually. So Delilah said to Samson, verse 6, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. And Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like other men. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to them, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. So again, we have the fresh bowstrings. And by the way, they were, they were made from like tendons and stuff, which are part of a corpse, a dead body of an animal, which he shouldn't have been touching. And so the, the hint he gives her is, uh, is bring this unclean thing and, and wrap me in this unclean thing. And he shouldn't have done that. He shouldn't have been touching any unclean thing because of his Nazarite vow, but he does it. And, um, and she ties him up, and uh, what do you know? She, she uh, says, you know, the, the Philistines are upon you. And he jumps up and snaps him, of course. He's Samson. He snaps him. Uh, that, that plan doesn't work, right? Well, you know, fool me once, shame on you kind of thing. Well, the story, the story continues with this guy. And so we, we see in, uh, in verses 10 and following, Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you've mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. So he's been bound with new ropes before. Remember when the men of Judah bound him when he had been hiding in the rocks they, and they tie him up and they take him and deliver, to the, deliver him to the Philistines? That was with new ropes also. And so he's, he's kind of making a hint towards that. But um, what's amazing to me is that he does it again, right? So she said, how can I tie you up so that you're powerless? He gives an idea, right? He's playing with her. And he wakes up and what do you know? She tied him up with that thing. Oh, imagine that, right? So you'd think he'd learn his lesson, but he doesn't. And I think it's not that he didn't learn his lesson. I think it's that he knew he could get out of anything. So he tells her again, oh, I'll try the new rope thing, the new, new rope thing. Tie me up with new ropes, and I'll be, I'll be just as weak as these other guys, right? I'll be, I'll be just like everybody else. And, and, uh, and so he wakes up, and what do you know? He's tied up in new ropes. And uh, she says the same thing again. She's got guys hiding in the inner room just in case this works. And, um, and uh, of course, that doesn't work. He's able to break the ropes. No problem, right? Twice, right? He did the exact same thing twice, and he escaped. So he's actually emboldened, Right? He's not, it's not that he's not learning his lesson. He's thinking, I can get out of anything. This is amazing, right? This is fun. The way I can, the way I can toy with this, the way I can tease with this, right? So verses 13 to 14, he does it again. Then Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So, while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. So he gives a third example, right? She comes to him again and, You've been mocking me and, and uh, tell me, really, what's the, what's the true you know, key to your strength? How, how could I bind you? How could I make you helpless? And, and so he tries another thing he's escaped everything else why not this and so he suggests this thing of you know weaving his hair into the 
into the you know into a loom and and tying it off with a pin and all that kind of stuff seems kind of bizarre to us but what's he really doing he's getting a lot closer isn't he he's getting close to what the secret is about his Nazarite vow about his hair never being cut yeah he he didn't say cut my hair but now he's kind of he's kind of honed in a little bit and he's 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 flirting with disaster he's getting closer and he's getting uh he's taking greater and greater risks with his own safety and security. And so he tells her, instead of some random thing, he tells her, well, it's the hair. Really, it's the hair. So what you need to do is weave it together, put it all together in this loom, tie it off, and that's how it'll work, right? So you see how he's getting close. He's getting right to the edge of telling her what the truth is. And, of course, that doesn't work. You know, uh, she says the same thing. He wakes up. Oh, big deal. His hair's, you know, tied up in a loom. That's not a big deal for Samson. He pulls the pin, pulls his hair out. He's good to go, right? No problem. He's, he's escaped yet again. And so he, here he has, he's flirted with disaster. He's pushed right up to it, right? He's, he's almost betrayed the key to his strength. He's almost betrayed the Lord ultimately. Walked right up to that edge and he's been able to escape yet again. So his, his, his foolhardiness is uh, not only unbelievable, but, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's risky. It's risk-taking. It needs to push the limits even farther. It needs to go farther into it and make it a little scarier or a little more challenging or a little bit more appealing or a little bit more enticing to him. This isn't so much fun. Yeah, just tie me up with stuff. Eh, not a big deal. He gets closer. Let's, okay, let's try the hair. Right. So Samson's foolhardiness is really unbelievable. And we shouldn't be surprised that it leads to an unmitigated betrayal, an unmitigated betrayal. Verses 15 through 17. And she said, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. So she sticks with it day after day and she keeps pressing and she keeps asking she keeps nagging she stays with him and by the way the term that she uses when she says you don't even love me it's exactly the same thing his bride said did you know that flip back to the story about his bride chapter 14 so remember the 30 men had been given this uh this riddle how to answer it. They couldn't figure it out. And so they go to the wife and they threaten the wife and say, you better get the answer for him or else we're going to burn you, you and your father. Verse 16 of chapter 14. And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. Right. She threatens him that way or she she pleads that he doesn't actually love her or else or else he would have told her the answer. And that's exactly the same ploy that is used by Delilah uh, here in, in chapter 16 to get the truth out of him. So she presses hard day after day and she says you don't even love me if you really loved me you would tell me this this secret the secret to your strength and so finally he gives in and he tells her the secret he tells her the secret the truth about his hair and so the betrayal here is not that delilah an immoral philistine woman betrays samson that's not the betrayal you expect that you expect that when you go looking for a philistine woman and you're an israelite and you enter into an immoral relationship. The betrayal is that Samson, the Nazarite to God from birth, betrays his calling completely, entirely. In chapter 13, the angel of the Lord had told Samson's parents that there were three things in particular that he must be careful to avoid. Don't drink uh, or eat anything that comes from a vine. Don't eat anything unclean. And don't, even, don't ever get a haircut. Right? Don't shave your head ever. Those are the three key, key things, right? Regarding the first, what he, what, remember the story of, of the lion that jumped on him? Where was he? He was in the vineyards of Timnah. What's he doing in a vineyard? 
He can't eat the grapes. He can't drink the wine. He can't eat the raisins. He should, he should have avoided the thing entirely. But no, he's in the vineyards of Timnah, right? And after that, he goes to a feast, and it's the kind of feast where there would have been wine, right? It's a banquet with wine. That's where he goes. So that's, that's, uh, that, that's how he breaks the first sign. Regarding the second one, remember he ate the honey from the beehive that was found in the rotting carcass of that lion that he had killed earlier? He eats that honey, gives it to his parents, etc. Obviously, that's unclean and, and gross, by the way. Honey that comes out of a dead lion. And that, that seemed fine to him. And he ate that and he gave it to his parents. They didn't know. He broke the second sign. And to this point, though, he's at least held on to the third one. And he stayed with the third one. He's kept it by not cutting his hair. But with Delilah, he goes all the way. And he utterly betrays his calling. His, 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 uh, his, he betrays God. And it's complete. It's final. So the unmitigated betrayal is of him betraying God. Let's continue in verse 18. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines saying, come up again for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. By the way, 1,100 pieces of silver and there were five lords of the five Philistine army, or five Philistine cities in, in the area. That is a lot of money. Of course, money, you know, decreases and increases in value. It fluctuates and things like that. But there, there are stories of entire plots of land bought for like 150 pieces of silver. And here she's going to get 5,500 for turning Samson in. First of all, the Philistines had a lot of money. And second of all, they really valued Samson's death. And so uh, she's very motivated by this, right? By this 5,500 pieces. So she says, come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. I've been here before. No big deal. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. So mighty Samson, great and mighty Samson. He's been captured because he's given up what is his true secret. The final vow that he had not broken, the one thing he was holding on to, the one thing to which he was faithful, not to cut his hair. That's the final piece of his vow to God. And when he gives that up, the Lord leaves him. And he ends up as weak as any other man. And they capture him, they gouge out his eyes, they arrest him, they take him down to Gaza, and they put him to work doing woman's work, grinding in the mill. And so he's utterly humiliated, and they've done exactly what they want to do with him. They're not quite done yet, but they've done exactly what they want to do with him. He's, 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 uh, he, his, look, at, look at verse 20. Verse 20 is, is a, a peek into what's going on in his heart. So she says, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. He woke from his sleep, and look what he says to himself. I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. He had so hardened his heart. He had so developed a pattern of rebellion and escape that he was convinced he could do anything and escape. He had no fear of God. He had no fear of the situation. He had no fear of circumstances or consequences of his sin because he had always escaped. And he would do so again. It, think about how many times in his, in his saga we see him escape impossible circumstances. What's one more? No big deal. His heart is so hardened and his, his, uh, his self-confidence is, is pathetic. It's ridiculous. But that's where he is. He's a presumptuous fool. The Lord had left him. He was on his own for the first time since he was conceived. He was on his own. He couldn't rely on God's miraculous strength or his blessing now. And folks, the, the magic... The strength, the secret was not the hair. It wasn't that he needed more hair so he could have more strength. It was his commitment to God. And that had been the one thing that he had held on to. 
the one thing, the one way in which he had been faithful was not to get his hair cut. He's already blown the others. He couldn't care less about the others. He toys with them. But the hair he had held on to, some piece of faithfulness to God. And he gives that one up. It's like he's testing God. It's like he's thumbing his nose at God. I can break all the vows, God. You know, I'll always have my strength. I'll always have my strength. And so he does that, cuts his hair off. And he ends up as weak as anyone else. And he gets captured and he gets, uh, he gets sent away to Gaza. So he gets to go back to Gaza. And that's where, that's where we find him at the end. He's, his eyes are gouged out. He's chained up. He's a prisoner. He's weak. And he's doing woman's work. He's humiliated utterly. So he was ambushed in Gaza. But he got away by God's help. And he was ambushed in Sor- at Sorek. And he pays the price with his strength and with his eyes and with his freedom. The final act, though, sees him avenged in Gaza. Look at verses 23 through 25. And the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. It's pretty sad because that's really what the Israelites should have been saying about their enemies, giving praise to their God about Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God, the God of Israel delivering their enemies into their hand. But here you have the Philistines saying that our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. And so we have the enemy's glory, the enemy's glory. It should be the Israelites glorying in God. It should be God receiving glory for what he has done in the lives of the Israelites. But here in this story, because of the actions of Samson, because of Samson's heart, we have the enemies of God receiving glory and they are enjoying it utterly. They're throwing a giant feast, a giant party. They're in the temple of Dagon, which was their God, and they were giving him praise and giving him honor and giving him glory for having delivered Samson, their enemy, up into their hands. So God's enemy ends up with the glory in the situation. So we see the enemy's glory. But then we also have Samson's vengeance. We're nearing the end now. We have Samson's vengeance. Look at verse 26. And Samson said to the young man, who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. So you have this idea of this temple is built and and somewhere in the middle of it, a, a key piece of it are these two pillars. And they're pretty near one another. Uh, about six feet apart, maybe maybe less, somewhere in there, uh, and and they are they are a central piece holding this entire thing up. And somehow you probably have this like a curved roof, like a, a second story sort of, and that's where the party's going on, and that's where the three thousand people are all standing, right? And so they're they're on there, and the the focal point of their attention, you have the god Dagon, but you also have Samson, who's the defeated enemy, right? And so they're all jeering at Samson, they're all laughing at him, they're all glorying in their God and their God's victory over Samson and, uh, and Israel's God. And so you have this whole thing lined up and he's standing right down there in the middle between these two pillars. And so he, he asked the young man with him, just uh, let, me, let me touch him so I can lean against him. Then Samson called to the Lord. By the way, that's the second time only that we have Samson calling to the Lord. The first time was for a drink of water, by the way. And here's the second time. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. 
Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He judged Israel 20 years. And so we see his, his vengeance here that finally at the end, he's weak and he has his opportunity. He sees his chance and his hair. I skipped a verse earlier. Did that on purpose. He thought I just skipped it. Look at verse 22. So after he's arrested, he's taken down to Gaza. His eyes are gouged out. He's been made weak, right? He's chained up. He's grinding in the mill. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. By the grace of God, there's a slow returning of his strength. And you see that he has at least learned something. He's learned enough to call upon the Lord by the end. And so the grace of God is at work slowly in his life. And you see at the end, you see him calling upon God for only the second time in all of his story. Oh, Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines. Now, if he had paused right there and if he had said that your name may be avenged, right, or that I may be avenged for how you've uh, how they've treated Israel or how they've treated you or how they've treated me, your servant or something like that. But what does he say? that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my eyes, for my two eyes. So even in the end, he's not a stellar man of faith. <laughs> he's, not, he's not really concerned about the glory of the Lord. He's not concerned about God's name. He's not concerned about God's reputation. Even all the way to the end, he's crying out to the Lord. That's good. He's crying out to the Lord that God would give him revenge because he lost his eyes. Not as good particularly if you think back of what his eyes have gotten him into. He went down to Timnah and saw the young woman and went back and told his parents, hey, I've seen a young woman and I want her for my wife. And then he saw and then he saw and it leads him into trouble every time. And so he's, his eyes are key to him, but he takes his vengeance. God grants him strength. God blesses him one more time and he's able to push with incredible strength and, and push these pillars apart that the whole, uh, the whole building could collapse in. It kills 3,000 of these people who were up on the roof laughing at Samson and, and jeering at God. And it kills the five lords, by the way, who are the lords of the Philistine cities. And so uh, it's, a, it's a major, major um, uh, degree of vengeance that Samson gets here. So we have the enemies of God glorying and we have Samson's vengeance. But what I want to draw our attention to is God's victory. God's victory. That's the final piece in all of this. Remember, remember what, uh, what was said when Samson first went down and saw the woman of Timnah and went back and told his parents, hey, I've seen this Philistine woman and I want you to go get her for my wife. And, and they were saying, well, you, shouldn't you, you know, marry someone from our own clan? You know, marry, marry a Jew, marry a Hebrew girl. And, uh, and it says that they did not know that this thing was from the Lord because he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. All of Samson's life has been God seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. And he's done so in small ways and in ever-increasing ways, right? Remember, at first, it's just the 30 men of uh, the, the, the 30 men that he goes down and kills so he can take their, take their clothing, right, to give to his guys that he made a bet with. 30 men, not a big deal. Well, then what's the next thing that happens? We have 300 foxes that he catches and ties tail to tail and puts a, puts a, a, a torch, a burning, flaming torch between their tails and then sets them free at harvest time. Standing grain everywhere, burns the whole place down. Right. So here you have he, their crops are destroyed. God is picking a fight and the fight is getting bigger. And from there, you have a fight between Samson and a thousand of the Philistine men and he kills them. So now the number's up to a thousand plus their crops, plus the 30 men before. And in the end, what do you see happen? He's arrested. He's made weak and everybody's around him. It's a large gathering of, of God's enemies in one place. And Samson, in his own death, is able to kill 3,000 of them. And, and 3,000 is a good number, of course. But key is, is the lords of the Philistines were there. They were watching and they got crushed too. God had picked a fight through Samson with the Philistines and he had gotten his fight. And the result is a dead Samson, a pathetic Samson. But God used him in a, an incredible way to really drive a wedge between the people of Israel and the Philistines who were in charge of them. 
So God wanted a fight, and God got a fight. So that's that's the life of Samson. That's, uh, you know, <laughs> you kind of have to look hard to find the positives in there. Now, the story doesn't end, of course, with Samson. The the judge's story is is going to change a little bit as you progress through the next uh, couple of weeks, the next few chapters that we're going to look at, right? But then you also have, have the book of 1 Samuel coming up. In the line of history, you have 1 Samuel coming up. And what happens in 1 Samuel? Well, of course, Samuel becomes the judge. And by the way, Samuel's a really good judge. Whew, that's a breath of fresh air. We haven't seen one of those for a while. He's a really good judge. And, and who does he appoint? He, he anoints Saul as king. And what does Saul do? Saul goes to war with the Philistines. And then he kind of jumps ship a little bit. So Samuel anoints David. And what does David do? He crushes the Philistines. And so the fight that has been started already, the fight that has been picked, that, uh, that God used Samson to pick, will, will blow up and it will become enormous and it will lead to the greatest king, the greatest, the greatest king in Israel's history, David, destroying the Philistines. And so God will get his fight. So you have to look a little bit, but the story is not over. God is accomplishing something, and this is one piece in, in a larger bit. So what, what does this mean for us? What's the application for us? How does, this, how does this come home for us? Well, first of all, think about, think about Samson's life. Okay, the first thing, he goes down to Timnah, he sees that woman, he goes back and talks to his parents about it, and he ends up marrying her, right? And then that all goes south, of course. Well, then the next thing, he ends up, you know, with a prostitute for a one-night stand, and it leads to him almost getting captured. And after that, he ends up with another Philistine woman living together for a long period of time that ends up with him being uh, arrested and, and mutilated and all of that, right? So you see his, his downhill uh, spiral, really, of his, of his morality. So what's our conclusion? What's our application from that? Well, it's this. Sin is not content to remain at one level. Sin is not content to remain at one level. If it had its way, it would be the ultimate version of that sin. I'm going to read to us from John Owen, a great Puritan theologian, a book called Mortification of Sin in Believers. This is what he says. Sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, If it has its own way, it will go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism if allowed to develop. Every rise of lust, if it has its way, reaches the height of villainy. It is like the grave that is never satisfied. The deceitfulness of sin is seen that... It is modest in its first proposals, but when it prevails, it hardens men's hearts and brings them to ruin. Sin doesn't stay at one level. It's not content with a little sin. It will increase to the utmost if it has opportunity. That's the first application. The second one, God's salvation doesn't look like we might expect it to look. God's deliverance of his people doesn't appear in the way that we might want it to appear. As humans, there's something about us that wants to achieve, that wants to accomplish, and that's a good thing. But we have it in our minds that really the ultimate way of salvation is that God would look down and find that little gem inside of you. Or that little spark and then he would fan it into flame and he would make something great out of you. We have that in our hearts. Each of us has that. We, we want to be encouraged for who we are. We want to be built up in who we are. We might want to be a better version of us, but we want to be built up as who we are. And that is not the story of salvation in the Bible. The story of salvation in the Bible is that actually we are ultimately and finally and fatally flawed. And God, God doesn't look into us and find that little spark of life and fan it into flame to make us something good. He looks into our hearts and he sees deadness. He sees sin and fallenness. He sees us as hopelessly separated from him. Where would we be? Instead of fanning the flame that, that 
in our minds is alive inside of us. He puts the spark in us. He creates life in us. Salvation is all about God looking at our hopeless situation and Him sending His Son, His perfect Son, to become a man, to live an obedient, innocent life, to go to the cross, to pay the penalty, to pay for that wrath, to die and bear God's wrath that you and I deserve, and then give us that gift when we trust in Him. That is salvation. It's not the fanning to life of some spark inside of us. And that's the deal with Samson. The story of Samson is not about Samson. When did he ever do good? Even in the end when he called upon God. It was for the sake of his own eyes. God works good because he decides to work good. And that's the nature of salvation. It is different than we naturally think. We want to climb some ladder. We want to achieve something. We want to get there because we're good. The Bible tells us the truth that we are not. And God offers salvation in Christ because he is good and he's merciful to us. That's the nature of salvation in the Bible. Final point of application here. Unchecked carnal passions. Left unchecked. Will devastate your life. Will destroy you. Let me read this. I've, I've read this before, but it, but it bears repeating. The very first command given to humans has to do with the right use of sex. Genesis 1.28. Sexuality and its misuse distinguishes the holiness of Israel from the pagan nations. Leviticus 18. It marks the wise, righteous man versus the fool or the wicked man in Proverbs, and it makes up its beginning sections. Chapter 5 through 8 of Proverbs. It is heavily associated with being ruled by the devil and demons. Various examples with Mary Magdalene and Proverbs 5 and others. It is the only sin to appear. Catch this. It is the only sin to appear in every New Testament list of sins. It makes up three chapters, almost three chapters in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. It is the only sin, along with abstaining from customs that would offend the Jews, that is emphasized by the Jerusalem Council when instructing the Gentiles how to conduct themselves. It is the only sin specifically identified with sanctification as sanctification itself. 1 Thessalonians 4. And sexual immorality is that which primarily characterizes the idolatrous who are blinded by it and given over to a full embrace of it and other sins that follow. Romans chapter 1. It seems to be at the core of our rebellion or submission toward God. It is a, it is a sin that pervades all cultures regardless of time and circumstances. And this is perhaps why the New Testament addresses it so much. But it also may, may answer why it seems like evangelical preachers are obsessed with it, as is often claimed. The more Bible exposition you give, the more you're going to run into it and talk about it. Your view of sin, if based on the Bible's emphasis, will emphasize it. Our culture and the church are continually trying to downplay it as just one sin among many or as something that is not as bad as other sins. Yet the Bible emphasizes it as a core indicator of the worship of ourselves over God and others. It's the emphasized fruit that characterizes a false teacher and his followers in Second Peter chapter 2. And it characterizes those who use the gospel as a shield to justify their lifestyles in the book of Jude. Sexual immorality is powerful, powerful, and it is destructive. And so if you have your pen... Uh, I'd like you to write down in the notes section because I'm going to read through these too quickly for you to, to catch them all. But it's quite a few verses that I keep handy regarding this, okay? The first is Proverbs 25, 28. Proverbs, Proverbs 25, 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Defenseless. Self-control. That's Proverbs 25, 28. Next is Proverbs 27, 20. Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. When have you ever seen enough? Only temporarily. First Peter 2.11, I read this last week. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Romans 8.6, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life. 
and peace. Romans 6, 11 and 12. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 and 8. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Colossians 3, 5 and 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And finally, Psalm 1611. Psalm 1611, and really this is the motivator. This is powerful. This is a positive, powerful motivator. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611, what a motivator. God's presence. Samson spent his life seeking the presence of Philistine women. And it destroyed him. And he could have sought God's presence. And he could have had God's presence because God gives it freely. And he offers it to you too. And at his right hand are pleasures, true, lasting pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you speak into our lives where we are. We don't have to enter some ivory tower. We don't have to think only on high planes, but we can, we can talk to you and hear from you where we are in the trenches. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts, that we would find joy, that we would find comfort, that we would find pleasure in your presence that we would set aside the things in this world that, that would tempt us and draw us away, that all the, all the Delilahs in the world, all the, all the distractions, all the, all the wiles of the enemy would be made clear to us and that they would be set aside, that we would value you, that we would pursue you, that we would seek to be in your presence and to know you and to walk with you and have that kind of experience that the psalmist was talking about. Lord, I pray that you would do that work in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would work in all of us, that we would value you this week, that we would value walking with you this week. I pray that you would do a work in us. I pray that you would do a work to regenerate those in this room who don't know you, that you would draw them to yourself and that they would see uh, that, that the, the things that they have valued the most are not valuable, but you are, and that you would draw them to yourself. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.